We have been following the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra is a righteous and godly man, but he's primarily a teacher. If you remember, before Nehemiah arrived to rebuild the walls, Ezra had taught the people for something like 14 years. His great work was to help them cut their ties to foreign idols. But he was not a national leader. He did not exhort them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He did not address local um, political opposition. He was not the leader the Israelites needed um, here in Judea in the, you know, as they've returned from exile. Um, And so each person kind of went their own way doing as they wished. That is until Nehemiah arrives. Nehemiah immediately takes charge, organizes all the families of Judah and gets the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt like in a couple of months. He strongly resists Sanballat, Tobiah, and others who oppose him. He gets the job done and once again provides a platform for Ezra's voice to be heard. It is under Nehemiah's leadership that Ezra is able to teach the people again, and the people respond with an oath and a vow that they will follow Yahweh alone. You have heard this story and this chorus a zillion times by now. Um, But then when things are going smoothly, Nehemiah is recalled by King Artaxerxes and he has to go back to Persia to, you know, the Persia, the capital of Persia, not uh, obviously Judea is part of the Persian empire. Nehemiah has to go back to the capital and he has to leave Ezra in charge, which means there's a big power vacuum and a lack of strong leadership again. And what do you think happens? I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Of course, the Israelites run amok. A priest named Eliashib is in charge of the storage rooms in the temple, and he is best buds with Tobiah. Now, Tobiah has been a big political player all along. He's an ally of Sanballat, who's the governor of Samaria. And even though he's an Ammonite from across the river, he's related by marriage to some important Israelites. Now, Tobiah has done everything possible to stop the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And although he failed in that task due to Nehemiah's courage and leadership, Tobiah is still working for the downfall of Israel. And now with Nehemiah gone, Tobiah's back in business. He talks to his buddy, the priest Eliashib. He talks him into moving the grain offerings, the incense, the wine, the olive oil, and the other stuff out of the temple storerooms and giving those rooms to him, Tobiah. I don't know whether he lives in them or conducts business in them, but whatever he's doing in there, we know Tobiah is up to no good. In this part of the story, Ezra is silent. In fact, we do not hear from him again. He has either died or his voice has become completely ineffective. 
So God does what God always does when his people are running amok. He sends a prophet. And this last prophet is named Malachi. His book is the very last book in the Old Testament and the last book left for us to study in the Hebrew Bible. His name means my messenger and is the same word used for angel in Hebrew. He speaks for the Lord. The Lord says to Israel, why do you treat me like this? You treat me with less honor than a son treats his father. You treat me with less respect than a servant treats his master. Even your priests hold me in contempt. And you act all innocent about it. Like, but you know exactly what you're doing. You do not bring me first fruits. You bring me the least valuable of your flocks, your wineries, and your fields. Try doing that when paying tribute to your governor and see what happens to you. I'd, I'd rather have no offerings at all than this disrespect. Shame on you. Cursed is the one who has an acceptable offering to bring to the Lord, but brings the worst instead. For I am a great king and my name is to be feared among the nations. Didn't you learn anything from Jacob and Esau? Jacob and Esau were brothers, twins actually, and yet I loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now you have to know the backstory here to understand what the Lord is saying. Neither brother was a great guy, but throughout his life, Jacob sought the Lord's blessing. He did it in all the wrong ways. But he fought and he worked and he wrestled to find and follow God. And in the end, the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. And he became the father of this great nation. But Esau took the other path. Esau despised the Lord. He married two Canaanite women over his parents' objections He thought so little of his birthright that he sold it to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Esau is the very picture of the Israelites now in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the Lord says, have you learned nothing from Jacob and Esau? Then the Lord speaks directly to the priests. Your ancestor Levi spoke only truth. He walked in peace and righteousness and turned many people away from their sins. I want my covenant with him, a covenant of life and peace to continue, but you are making it impossible. The things you say and teach make the people stumble and turn away from me. People come to priests because they're supposed to be speaking truth from me. You are supposed to honor and revere me. You have broken my covenant with Levi, your ancestor. And so I reject you. You will be despised and humiliated. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. Now, this sounds harsh and sounds as if God is visiting the sins of the fathers on their descendants, but we know from elsewhere in scripture 
that God doesn't do that. So it is far more likely that this statement means that these faithless priests, the priests descended from Aaron, will raise up their sons to be faithless just like themselves. And that is tragic. Descendants here can also be taken to mean anyone following in these wicked, self-serving footsteps. Then the Lord speaks to the people. You also have been unfaithful to me and to each other. You have married women who worship other gods. You have divorced your true wives, the wives of your youth. And you wonder why I don't accept your offerings. Now, the Hebrew gets a little tricky here. The words don't make sense together without some smoothing. Um, And therefore, there is a lot of variance in the translation. So I'm going to show you the actual words here. It's worth looking at carefully because this is a passage about divorce. And it is used as a clobber verse in that context. Here it is. For he that hates divorce literally putting away, for it covers or conceals or overwhelms violence. The Hebrew word is Hamas, and it also means wrong or cruelty or injustice. With one's garment, says the Lord of hosts, guard your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So, since we can't just string the words together and make sense out of them, you have to kind of step back and try to get the overall impression from this grouping of words, this passage. And it's, it is an impression in which divorce is concealing injustice as if a cloth were spread over the injustice to hide it. The he that hates phrase is usually translated as the Lord who's doing the hating, but it could, and I think probably should, apply to anyone. We'd all probably agree that divorce is, in general, a bad thing. The God, God only allows it in the law of Moses because humans need it. But here, the Lord is speaking to something else entirely. I don't think he's talking about divorce in general. Within the context of the passage as a whole, the Lord is speaking to the violence and injustice underlying the divorces that were currently happening at this time in Israel. The legality of divorce was, you know, the piece of paper was being used to conceal a wrong, a cruel injustice. And in the previous verse, the object of this injustice is the man's true wife, the wife of his youth, who is being cast aside and undoubtedly thrown into poverty in favor of an idol-worshiping foreign wife. The Lord can relate to those cast-off wives. He himself feels divorced from his people. He feels like the first wife who has been abandoned for another woman. He says, Judah has been unfaithful. A terrible thing has happened in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated my dwelling place by divorcing the wives of their youth and marrying wives who worship other gods. The Lord feels compassion on the abandoned wives of Judah. He says, 
I am witness between you men and the wife of your youth. Guard your spirit so that you do not deal treacherously. So don't let people use this verse as a clobber verse to insist that you should stay married to an abusive spouse because, quote, the Lord hates divorce. That's not what this is saying at all. In fact, it's virtually the opposite. The Lord is saying, stop abusing your wives and then concealing it by divorcing them and casting them out, by putting them into economic poverty and helplessness. Stop, And he's saying, stop abusing me, the Lord, and concealing it by making a show of your piety by worshiping idols. Then in chapter three, the Lord begins speaking about the end times. He says, my messenger will prepare the way before me. Then I will come suddenly to my temple. The messenger of the covenant will come. Now, we don't have enough information quite yet to tell who this is. And that part about preparing the way before me sounds like John the Baptist, doesn't it? But the next passage clarifies that this whole section is talking about the Messiah. Remember Handel? Handel picked up this part of his Messiah right out of Malachi. You'll probably recognize it. Who can stand the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Notice that Malachi says this refining fire is like a launderer's soap. Launderer's soap cleanses. It does not destroy. He will purify the sons of Levi and they will make offerings in righteousness. In this end time day of the Lord, the Lord is not out to destroy his people, but to cleanse and to restore them. But he's dead serious about the cleansing part. He says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against those who commit adultery or bear false witness in court, against those who exploit laborers and widows and orphans, against those who turn away the immigrant, against all who do these things because they do not hold me in awe. Then the Lord challenges his people saying, test me in this. Bring me your first fruits. Bring me your tithes and see how I will throw open the floodgates of heaven. I will pour out so much blessing upon you. You won't be able to contain it all. Does this sound like a vengeful hateful God to you after all of this, that this is the God showing up to judge us. This is what God looks like in judgment. He cleans out all the evil, scrubs us with soap. And when we turn to thank him, he pours so much blessing on us. We can't even contain it. He can't wait to pour the blessing out on us. The Lord continues, surely the day is coming, burning like a kiln. 
all the insolent and all who do evil will be like stubble. The day will set them on fire and they will have nothing left. Now notice this is still a refining fire. The folk who have nothing except stubble to offer will be left with nothing when the fire is through but they themselves will remain. It does not say they will be destroyed. The wording in the Hebrew says literally, they will be left with neither root nor branch, but they will be left. But you who revere me, for you, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Notice that this is righteousness. The word also means justice. That is what brings healing. Remember the law of my servant Moses and all the things I told him on the mountain. You will frolic like well-fed calves and the wicked will be ashes under your feet. Now, this definitely refers to trampling the wicked, but taken in its context, it seems to correspond with the burning away of all their deeds, leaving only ashes on their ground, on the ground. You can interpret it as a promise, the righteous will trample the wicked, but I can't actually picture a truly right, righteous person doing any such thing. I think this is trampling the ashes from their, the, what's left of their actions under their feet. But that's, that's my interpretation. Then God says, heads up, pay attention to this. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day comes. Elijah will bring the hearts of fathers back to their children and the hearts of children back to their fathers. And in this context, it seems pretty clear to me that God is one of these fathers who is desperate to, to have the hearts of the children turned back towards him. And he says, or else, I mean, I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, wait a minute. That's, that wasn't what we were expecting. So when that happens, and when a verse seems totally weird and out of place, we need to pull out our backpack tools. And one of our primary tools is understanding the verse within the passage as a whole. Remember that this whole passage is in the context. It opened with a statement of a fire in a kiln. The end time day of the Lord is like a fire in a kiln. This is a fire that does not destroy the pottery, but strengthens and beautifies it. The Lord is saying he will at that he will send the prophet Elijah before that time to bring the hearts of families together. And all that family stuff has just been preceded about by this lo that long section about divorce being used as a tool of injustice and violence and how the Lord felt like a rejected spouse. The Lord is saying, I am going to send another prophet to you before that final day in one last try to turn your hearts towards each other and towards me. But it is your choice. If you choose to remain as you are and continue to do evil, then everything you have including your precious promised land 
will, will be burned completely. The Hebrew word is cherem. We've studied that word before. It's a special word used when something is burned completely and totally away in devotion to the Lord. It is sudden, and what is left is completely holy to the Lord. It is the word used whenever something is set apart, made unusable for human purposes, and is wholly devoted to the Lord. So what he's actually saying here is, I will come and strike the land so that it becomes completely holy and devoted to me. So these last two verses of Malachi that I'm showing here are hugely important. They are the last two verses of the Nevi'im, the section of the Hebrew Bible devoted to the books of the prophets. They are the last verses we have of a prophet sent to Israel in this in the Hebrew Bible. This is the last prophet, chronologically last. And these two verses are literally the last two verses in the Old Testament since the Christians put the books of the prophets last. Way back in Deuteronomy 18.15, just before his death, Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like him from among his people, and they must listen to him. And now here in Malachi 4, God says he will also send the prophet Elijah in one last attempt to reconcile the wounded and angry hearts within families. It is because of these two passages that Jews have always expected Moses and Elijah or someone in their spirit and power and calling to come before their Messiah comes. Remember this, we will run across the expectation of Moses and Elijah in the New Testament. Well, Malachi's words have a tremendous impact on the people. Those who do hold the law, the Lord in awe, speak together and write a scroll of remembrance in the presence of the Lord. And Yahweh listens to them and hears them. He says, on the day I make them my treasure, they shall be my own. I will spare them and have compassion on them. And once again, you will see the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Between the just and the wicked. I don't know if you caught this a moment ago, but the only folks who write on this scroll of remembrance or even care about it at all are those who already revere the Lord. The others, the ones who are the actual problem, aren't participating here. So when Nehemiah does finally return from the court of King Artaxerxes, he finds things in shambles. He cannot believe the priest Eliashib has allowed Tobiah, of all people, to take up residence inside the temple. Are you kidding me, he says? And Nehemiah immediately throws out all of Tobiah's stuff out of the temple storage rooms and has the rooms purified. 
Then he restores all the grain offering and incense and wine and olive oil and everything else to its rightful place in the storage rooms. And he also finds out that while he was gone, none of the Levites or musicians were paid their wages. So they had all quit and gone back home. What a mess. Nehemiah calls the leaders together and scolds them, saying, why have you neglected the house of the Lord? And he reestablishes procedures and reappoints people and sets everything right again in the temple. Then he goes out in the city and discovers that the people are doing business on the Sabbath. The people of Judah are treating the Sabbath like a normal work day. Foreign merchants are entering the city on the Sabbath to sell their wares. So Nehemiah orders that the gates of Jerusalem be closed immediately. But even then, he can't find trustworthy guards. So he has to station some of his own men at the gates to be sure no merchants are secretly let in on the Sabbath. Some of the foreign merchants actually camp right outside the gates until Nehemiah runs them off and threatens to arrest them. Then Nehemiah finds that even the priests have become corrupt. They have allowed their own sons to marry foreign wives again. And of course, the people have done the same. Nehemiah excoriates them all saying, you must not do this. It was because of marriages like these that the great King Solomon fell into sin and he loved God and was beloved by God. But the temptation to please his idol-worshiping wives was too great. Even for him, how much more so will you be tempted? And so Nehemiah drives away those who insist on staying with their foreign wives. He purchased them from among the priests and the Levites and assigns those who remain to their proper places in the house of the Lord. And after all his labors, Nehemiah prays, remember me, Lord, and show me mercy in your abundant love. And so, dear ones, we have traveled through the entire story contained in the Hebrew Bible. We followed the story chronologically in the way it most likely happened. And rather than knowing bits and pieces, we now know the contours of the land. We know how the story fits together and why the prophets said what they did. We know how we fit into this story. We all likely started out with some tools, but we have added to them. We have become veteran hikers. We can readily identify passages or verses that do not resonate with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit that bears witness to God. We know how to use the tools in our backpacks to dig into those passages, to place them in their appropriate context, and to explore the meanings behind the English translations. Never again can someone tell us that the God of the Holy Spirit of the Old Testament is hateful and loving. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Never again can someone tell us the Old Testament is not worth reading because it's been superseded. And never again can someone use an Old Testament passage to clobber us. For we have seen the face of God in these books, and we know this face well. We have changed our perspective from a one verse at a time jumble of disconnected puzzle pieces to a grand and glorious view of the life and blessing and glory and freedom that God intended for us from the very beginning. We have read an epic love story. We now know that we can gaze with confidence into the face of God and know that we are loved by one who will do whatever it takes to be with us. Thanks be to God. So now let's go into our breakout groups. You'll find the questions focus on identifying the major themes of the Hebrew Bible and the unchanging characteristics of God. When you finish the page today, on that page will be solid truths, things that never change. They will be truths that are deeply rooted in the entire Hebrew Bible. They will, they will be truths that can be used as a measuring stick against whatever boulders might tumble into our path in the journey ahead. This is a page you'll want to keep handy because the world, as the people of Judea know it, is about to shift again. There you are. Turn your microphones back on. You put us back in our groups. We weren't done. (laughs) (laughs) We were rocking it. Were you rocking it? See, I thought, man, these questions are so easy. They'll I only need 10 minutes for these. <laughs> they were easy and they were fun. I enjoyed that. It yes. was fun, right? To like this, this perfect summary exercise. <laughs> Get it all yeah. down to to remember every, how everything yeah. fit together. Exactly. <laughs> What are you casting aside? <laughs> That's right. So talk to me. We'll go through it because I want to hear what you said. So uh, the first question was list the things that according to the Hebrew Bible are important to God that we do or not do. And, and I said, don't list the little stuff, just the really big themes that you see all the way through. What did you come up with there? Well, we started with follow Yahweh only. Yeah, that was like the main one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, group, and, we, called it, we called it turn to God, but the same thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, Julia made a point next to that, that I think it was Julia th- that said, God always wants to be with God's people. God traveled. With, that was Martha. That was Martha. Uh, that was Martha. God traveled with the Israelites, the first God to not be anchored to place. Yes. 
And even in the garden, the whole point was God wanted to be with God's people. I mean, before there ever was even any Israelites, none of that, right? Mm -hmm. Huge thing. What else did you We we were just talking about that right before we came back, which was I made the comment that God had the the many years, we don't know how much it was, before he even created us to realize he wanted us. <laughs> and then once he had us and we disappointed, he he's so wise, like an older person. He knows that he wants to reconcile us to him and he keeps giving us options, redirect, redirect, so that well, we'll be with him. Yeah. And also, I think another thing that it also shows is that God was like all parents. At the very beginning, he was like, what did I do? Because I don't know what to do with this thing. <laughs> it's tiny, small and fragile. What do I do? <laughs> God's a perfect parent because he learns along with his life as to how to, okay, this didn't quite work out. So let's try this to see if we can reach him. Right. So let's, so he never stopped. So talk to me a little bit more about what God said he wanted us to do. What, what, what was our, what were we collectively consistently called to do? Well, one thing that, that occurred to me was, and I, I am embarrassed that I could not remember where this came from, but the, the passage about uh, love, mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with your God. Right, right. Yeah. So please tell me where Micah that's from. Yes, Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8. Micah. Yeah, and, and also, um, you know, I always have read in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul both saying the entirety of the in love by love others mm-hmm. um now you can see that you know after studying through the entire hebrew bible we can see that is the theme love god and and do justice to others do not cheat others do not mistreat others um you know even today the passage you were talking about with you know don't throw away the wife of your youth um you know constantly treat each other justly and honestly, and and the way you would want to be treated. All of which falls under the category of love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. That that you don't, it doesn't matter if they're like you. Right. Or not. You just love everybody. Yeah. And then that that goes back to those two, what we see as very different words that... um, the Hebrew word that is frequently translated as righteousness means that it could easily, you could easily substitute justice in those passages and that that might actually be closer to the original meaning. Mm-hmm. And somebody- when we're talking about loving God, I mean, when we're talking about loving our neighbor, I have to constantly remind myself, we're not talking about feeling warm fuzzies for your neighbor. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, acting in their best interest. Yes. Martha, you had something to say. I was going to mention that somebody in our group uh, mentioned on that theme of justice that 
a takeaway for them was that um, justice and judgment are not synonymous. Yay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yay. We've learned a really important distinction there, right? Yeah. That, that, that justice is what we do, as Woody says, for the people around us, with the people around us, making sure that that what is done is truthful and right. And judgment, we've learned, is a cleansing, a making whole, a scrubbing with laundry soap, a refining fire, all these imageries that left uh, something holy, something eternal, right? So somebody gave me a great definition of justice a number of years ago that is potentially the result of the cleansing judgment. Justice, they said, is not that when your your new car breaks down and you take it to the shop and they fix it right the first time, it's that your new car doesn't break down. Hmm. That that that's what justice is. You're restored to justice um, hmm. when um, one one way justice can be restored is when the cleansing of judgment happens. The word that 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 we are dancing all around is the word shalom. It is the word that means wholeness, peace, mercy, judgment. It is, it is God's judgment. It is what God's judgment is. The word doesn't mean judgment, but, but when you read the word judgment, that's the word that needs to pop in your head. And we also added, which you just touched on, Gail, was the refining fire to restore his people. That has been a theme throughout. And so from that has been. And so from our point of view, what do we do? What do we do with that refining fire? What is what is our call there? It's a symbol of mercy and love on God's part. Mm -hmm. And for us to just lean into that yeah right that we touched on that when we talked about the ones uh not what we're called to do but about you know what is it that we have learned from the hebrew bible that's changed let's go let's move into that but before we go i want to pick up on micah 6 8 as being mm -hmm. you know if you were if if if, if, if we were going to so put down what belongs here in this first thing it, it is love god with your whole heart follow mm -hmm. god only love your neighbor as yourself mm -hmm. seek justice love mercy walk humbly do not put yourself in god's place mm -hmm. ever whether you know and the the bigger of a leader you are the more important that is yeah so that's yeah. like the big stuff that, that's on us. That's on us, right? Uh, God enables all that, but that's on us. Let's move to the second one. What things, if any, did you used to think were important to God that we do or not do that you now see in a different light? So I'm going to, I'm going to jump in with that one. Cause I said, I had a breakdown in Bible study over this, over this one, but it kind of back to what we just answered because we've always think I've always in interpreted the two testaments as things and now i look at the old testament like i'm looking at the new testament almost right i mean they they see but 
for me, it was the fishers of men. That's not my job. You know, my job, love them. My job is to love him and let him do the rest. Yes. So that was a big one for me. And what I noticed, and we talked about a little bit, was the relationship of your ties and your first fruits. How, how many times have we seen God say, go ahead, give them to me. I don't need them. You can keep them type of thing. And then there was a time, I don't know what lesson it was, where we had discussed this and you had mentioned, Gail, about it's not necessarily your 10% to the church. It might be if your family's hurting to get your family right. If it's to help somebody else, it's that's a, a way of helping. It's what you personally, maybe not money, what you personally have as a gift that you can offer mm-hmm. to serve the Lord. Well, and I don't remember who said it. Um, uh, it's where your heart is. Yes. That's Somebody right. said, I wrote that one down. <laughs> <laughs> it's where your heart is. Mm-hmm. And, um, there were so many different things. Obey, Renee. Obey. Yes. I, I always, you know, was taught and always thought, you know, if you didn't obey God, he was going to, you know, send, send something bad your way. Or, or, you know, I used to believe like some of the people when hurricanes hit, well, what did that city do? You know, because that was kind of the way I was taught. And it's not that. It's like God saying, if you do this, if you obey me, it's going to be better for you. Yeah. Was this it's not this- like a punishment thing and this or a threat? Obey me or else. Is it the way obey is? It was more like it is with our children where we say, well, if you do this, this is going to happen. And if you do that, that is going to happen. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. takes me back to that whole aha moment that I had early on in this Bible study is that God is a love and logic parent. God (laughs) allows us to suffer the consequences of the choices that we make, but God also tries to teach us that certain actions will have good consequences and certain actions will have bad consequences. Right. Joe, I heard you say something. I'm I'm sorry. I heard you try to say something there a minute ago. Yes. Well, and two th- on following on what Marlene just said, I, I made the comment that I wish I'd had this Bible study before I became a parent, because I definitely, if you know, God is our ultimate parent, see that, man, I made some mistakes. And, and a lot of it is thinking that I was doing the right thing by how I was what I was raised in the church. But um, is this the segment where we talked about also uh, about the judgments that we've cast upon other spiritual beings? I mean, that if you're Catholic, what you think about the rest of the world, or if we're Christian, what we think about Muslim, that all of that has been tossed out with the dirty water. Yeah. That wasn't in there anywhere, was it? Nope. And No, but how do we not learn that? I know, right? Yes. How do we not learn that? Is that what you right. said? Okay, yeah. How do we not glean that out of all the letters? I think we heard repeatedly that God is the king of all nations right? and that can get used in, well, we'll turn this nation into a godly nation. That's different 
God is the God of all nations, regardless, like you said, of what expression people use to recognize who God is and what God expects of them. And that's going to yeah. become a big player here real, really quickly in the Apocrypha. Yeah, um, as we go through the Apocrypha and we go through this big shift that is about to take place for the people of Judea, um, we're going to spend some, some significant time um, talking about this particular thing. Did, did any of yeah. you um, talk about sexual mores here? No. No, no, but we should have. I know it was like so far out of mind. It wasn't an issue, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did write one note that I didn't share with our group because our discussion had gotten so interesting. It just wasn't necessary. But one that I look at differently now after this particular lesson is the blue laws and the Sabbath, because. We talked about how Malachi had gone to, they had gone to the temple and they put all the business people out and all that and said, you don't do business on the Sabbath. Well, made me think of the blue laws. And I thought, well, you know, it's not so bad that we do business on the Sabbath, but I sure don't like to work on the Sabbath. I think there's a lot to be said for making time to stop and realizing that it is not by the work of your hands that you are fed. Wasn't that like even just not so long ago during the industrial revolution? I mean, they were having people work all of the time. In fact, yeah. I mean, and this was supposed to be godly countries, you know, Britain or Christian countries and yet they were treating their workers poorly with bad wages, bad working conditions, bad living conditions if they had housing. I mean, yeah, I don't think that we have to go very it's, far in time to find something like that. So, and a lot of this it's stuff still was there. built on, is built on um under, understandings that we've drawn out of the Hebrew Bible that are twisted or false, you know? Um, and, and so I want, but I want us going forward is to be able to recognize those things when they pop up as being off and twisted. Mm -hmm. And I want, as, but I also in questions one and three, I want us to have something to hold on to. So let's move to question three. It was list the attributes of God that have been demonstrated repeatedly throughout the Hebrew Bible. And after you list five or six, go back and number them in order of prevalence if you can. I mean, kind of what's the biggest thing, but, but what, what attributes of God that, that would be unchangeable attributes of God? Do you love. Know? love at the top. Love, yeah. Yeah, love at the top. Okay. What else did you see? I think Marlene said that God wants relationship with us. Isn't that interesting that that's such a big, big, huge thing in the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. I never hear people say that about yeah. the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Isn't, that what, isn't that what love God means? Doesn't it mean have a relationship with God? 
Yes, but it's not, but what's not coming across is how much God wants to have a relationship with us right. and always have. Yeah. Mercy was up there too. And, you know, I grew up in the era of, well, I grew up in a church setting that um, Jonathan Edwards, I think it was, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yep. And that's okay. how we were taught. You were supposed to fear God. He was a God of wrath. He was, holy cow, that was so far off. Right. Yeah. And we talked about that in number two, that another thing that we learned from that was that now when we think of fire, we don't think of it as the fire and brimstone, you know, God's punishing us, that it's the refining, it's a refinement. That it's and, it, it has become a, the good thing and holy thing that it is. Yes. And I, we listed a lot of attributes, but for me, and that's what love is the umbrella that encompasses everything, the mercy, the compassion, um, all of it. All of those. Yeah. And another thing I think, I forget who said this, someone in our group said, God is persistent. Yes. <laughs> Very persistent in wanting what he wants for us. He wants good for us, he, but he also lets us make our own choices. And then again, like a parent redirects. Mm -hmm. And, and he also has that, like Joe just said, the refining fire where things are drawn closer to him and the, the, he spares the righteous, but destroys wickedness. Yes. 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 He and the wickedness he's talking about isn't a person, right? It's an attribute person. I was going to say that has been, I think, commonly misunderstood in the Old Testament mm -hmm. is that we think, oh, he's striking, you know, yeah. We he's smiting, you know, when we started out with this, you guys would often use the word, well, God is, you know, smiting or I, I, or I thought or whatever. And, and mm -hmm. I, that word becomes less and less part of your vocabulary. <laughs> well, and instead of, instead of smiting the wicked, he's smiting wickedness in general. Yes. 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 Yeah. He's yeah. taking care of that attribute of wickedness and not keeping it attached to the person. He's getting right. it away from the person. Right. Which is a yeah. huge blessing, right? Yeah. I'd like to bridge and from two into three, something that hasn't been mentioned yet, um, kind of back to your uh, comment that we hadn't touched on sexuality, um, but I'd like to touch on gender. Mm -hmm. And that is um, that this helped me appreciate even more than I did before, the active role that women play in salvation history before the time of Christ. And it's more than, it's far beyond the, the instruction to take care of the widow. These were women actively carrying out the work of God. You know, it's um, the, the um, midwives who resisted mm, yes it's the 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 mother of mother or sister of moses who ensured he would be found 
Miriam. Yeah. Miriam's sister, yeah. Abigail, it's, the, the it's, wife yeah. of the, the foolish man, right? Who's it's, and it's on and on and on. And so many times I was told, well, women were either voiceless or nameless. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, and I think that, that one of the things that, that this perspective on the Hebrew Bible just blows away the whole misogynistic teaching that a women were a second thought were a secondary issue, you know, at least in the eyes of a, God, right? A lesser creation. Right. And also that women are eternally cursed because mm. Eve was the one that led Adam astray. Which, so to bridge this into number three, is that God cares for all of God's creation and wants, wants each part of God's creation to take their place. That's well put. Um, on the flip side, I did make a note and we didn't talk about this in our group. But I was making notes as you were doing the presentation, Gail, and I made the note that God despises those that marry wives that worship idols or other gods. Those kind of things you hear all the time. You know, that's the thing. If they're going to talk about women in the Bible, it's they led the men astray. You go back to Eve. She led the men astray. And... I'm now putting that under category two of things I'm looking at differently. Thank you, Martha. Yes. <laughs> yes. And um, so much of this, I'm, I'm hoping also that, that so much of what went under number two was wrapping paper that you used to get all tangled up in. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another thing that just occurred to me as we were talking um, that goes back under number two is Satan. Yeah, right? (laughs) And we're going to spend some more time on Satan um, as we go through the Apocrypha, through the intertestamental period, because that's when that whole concept starts to permeate culture. And so we're going to spend some more time there. I'll tell you a couple of things that I put down about God. Go ahead, Joe. Delineate. Can I ask Marley to delineate a little more? What do you mean by that's changed? Well, you know, in in general, the teaching um, that I received in most of the churches I attended growing up was that Satan is this horrendously power, evil force, rebel angel who's constantly trying to rip us away from God and always to be feared and extremely powerful and that we do not have the inner strength to withstand the onslaughts of Satan and that Satan is cursed and, and um, you know, all of those things. But over and over again, we see Satan whispering into God's ear present in the, in the celestial court and, and referred to sometimes as the adversary or, um, you know, uh, the, the the serpent in the garden. Um, Although and, that was an inference, you know, that was an inference. Right. You know, yeah, but I he's mean, only but I mean, in the three, in the, he, the, Satan is only named three small places in the yeah. entire Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And that, and that Satan in, in 
the Hebrew Bible context does not have this oversized role that right. we in mo many modern churches have attributed to this being right. as being almost equal the to God. He's not part of the theology of the Israelites, of the Hebrews. It's just not right. there. So I'm glad I asked. Thank you. Because I wasn't raised quite to believe like that. I didn't know yet. But yeah, the way you just said he's part of the theology is great. Well, I remember one thing that I was told by a pastor one time that to never pray to your, like in your mind, because the only one that can hear you is Satan. Oh, what? God can't hear you if you don't pray out loud. So oh, he doesn't know. Lord, <laughs> Renee, I am so sorry. Listen, oh my god! And I just remembered that because I remembered, and I thought to myself, then it was like, "But God's supposed to be living in my heart, right?" right. <laughs> That's a pretty wimpy God. Oh I, man! There was so many things, and I've learned that were just pooey. Oh. <laughs> Heartbreaking. I'm with Gail. I'm so sorry. That's what you were taught. <laughs> I was taught to be careful to ask for courage because you'll be tested. <laughs> oh, yeah yeah or patience yeah yes. i'll tell you guys a story it's short um <laughs> when i was a kid when i was 10 years old a very horrific thing happened in my family of origin and it involved my parents and my dad was wearing a t-shirt that said the devil made me do it <laughs> and i remember being told about that and that my mom was saying it wasn't his fault. It, it was the devil that caused that. And I never could understand that. And that saying has always been something I've rebuked forever. It just, he because doesn't do things. It doesn't ring true with the right. Holy Spirit living in yeah. you. You know, that's not true. I know it's not true. And, and, I, and there was a couple of attributes of God that um, I, I put down that seemed pervasive to me. Um, and they were creativity and flexibility and wisdom. I think... I don't think we can think of God without thinking of creative, sustaining, creative, ongoing, overflowing life force. That's where the healing comes from. It is a continually calling into being wholeness and blessing and relationship. And so we're to the end of our time today. And I just, uh, I want you to save your, save your notes on this because um, if somebody had perhaps given you this list and said, this is what the God of the Old Testament is, you might not have believed them at first. Um, because this sounds very much like the God of the New Testament to me, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And yet we we're still going to run into the old ways of thinking as we move forward through the Apocrypha and into the New Testament. There's some there's some stuff that needs to be undone, uh, some damage that needs to be undone still 
still left as we go forward. But today is just a huge, huge moment in my life, personally. It is a, I, I feel like I could, I could die in peace at this point. <laughs> not to, not to be, I, and I'm not being dramatic. I mean, I really mean that. There are, I feel like if something happened to me, there are other people who teach the New Testament, lots and lots and lots. There are not many who will take a Christian through the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Gail, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. um, you commented on um, how your understanding of God has changed from uh, the from your youth, and I'm assuming that some of that change came through a combination of life experience and your personal study and your seminary uh, and your pastoring. Mm -hmm. As you develop the course materials for this, did you have those moments where you went, oh, I get it now. I mean, has that been a continual process for you? It's always a continual process. There's, there are always places in my life that need healing. And there are always places where God shows up in new ways. Um, in ways that I did not understand before. Um, the preparing of the research, uh, doing the research and preparing for the lessons is um, something that changes me. Uh, just, I, I see connections I didn't see before. I understand things I didn't understand before. Um, God is is always a surprise and always stretches. I forget the quote, but it's a mind stretched to a new understanding can never return again. Something along those lines. That's beautiful. Well, Martha, that was a beautiful you... question. Gail, that was a beautiful response and great wrap up on there, Julia. So um, we will continue next week. We will pick up the Apocrypha next week. Uh, we'll do the first, um, the first couple of lessons. We'll do all the little, quote, stories in the Apocrypha. The, and then, then we'll get to the really important part, which is the Maccabees. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. And we will see you next week. And thank you for your faithfulness and for being here. I just want to let you know that you have changed my understanding so completely about God. Oh. And thank you. You yeah, all have, because I'm learning just as much from everybody else as I am learning from you because yes. there's thank things you. that I, I miss and somebody else will bring in and say, well, this, and it was like, oh yeah, I remember that now. And it's, just been so wonderful finding this bible study has been the best thing yes. just been the best you thing. can go with us because you're a great contributor yes. <laughs> yes. i'm planning on it okay, <laughs> good. we'll see y'all next week blessings on you bye, -bye all. everybody bye. Bye. i guess yeah. it's alone yale after <laughs> shalom. 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 Shalom.